So we're in this, uh, just, just a two-week series that we're doing called Grow, and uh, really coming off the back of the Ecclesiastes series, and we're just talking about what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus, what it, what it means practically to become like Christ. That's a term that can be really nebulous for a lot of people. We're talking about a set of practices, a set of practical uh, disciplines that we can put in place in our lives that over time can facilitate our spiritual growth. And the metaphor that we're working with in this series is the metaphor of fitness, right? Pretty appropriate coming into summer. The idea that just as we train physically to get our bodies in shape, just as if we're going to run a marathon, we need to commit ourselves to some kind of training so that we last the distance. It's exactly the same in our Christian walk. It's exactly the same following Jesus. In fact, one of the major metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe our, our life in Christ, our Christian journey, is the metaphor of a race or an athletic contest, this race. Paul talks about run the race in such a way as to win the prize. There's times he talks like he's running. There's times he talks like he's just taking one step after another and it's everything he can do just to keep going. But this metaphor of a race is a good description of our life of following Jesus. And if we're going to run this race in such a way as to win the prize, it's worth giving some thought to what we're doing about training and how we're preparing for this race. Because being like Jesus is not just a matter of trying more, trying harder, trying better. It's a matter of training and developing habits in our lives that are going to sustain us over the long haul. So that's what this series is about. And last week we talked about a couple of inward disciplines. We called them inward disciplines because they focused us on our own relationship with Jesus. That, that personal relationship that we have with God. We talked about the importance of Scripture. The importance of being in God's Word on a regular basis basis. We talked about solitude, drawing aside from the crowd, from life, just unplugging for temporary periods of time so that we can reconnect with God. A guy came up to me after the service last week and he said, man, I'm so encouraged by that and I was so inspired. I'm going to start this practice of getting a daily discipline going, of uh, spending time in God's Word. He says, I'm already busy and you know, I already get up early, but I'm going to get up earlier. It's the only time of day it can work for me. I'm going to get up at 5.30 now just to spend that half hour with God in the Bible. And it's so encouraging when you hear those stories. Not saying everybody has to get up at 5.30. You figure out what works for you. You figure out a way to do it. But that discipline, that personal discipline of time in God's Word on a daily basis is absolutely essential to your spiritual growth. And without it, you just won't grow. I said that last week. I'm saying it again because it's just fundamental to everything else that we talk about. So what I want to do today is just look at a few outward disciplines, a few practices that involve others. Because often what we do with our, our Christian life, our spiritual life, is we assume that all we need to do, the only thing that we need to focus on, is me and God, this personal, private, devotional connection between me and God. And that's essential, but it's not enough. We've been trained to think of ourselves as such solitary individuals, but that's not the way the Bible sees us. We are community people. We're saved into a family. We're saved into a body. We're saved into a community. And God's intention is that our community of faith, this community of faith, would be the primary context in which your spiritual life, your spiritual growth is nurtured and nourished. When you think about it, most of the letters in the New Testament were written to churches, 
not to individuals, a couple of them to individuals, but mostly to churches, to encourage them to figure out collectively, together, how to live out the Jesus life and how to figure this out. Not just to a bunch of separate, autonomous Christians, but to a body of Christ, because we're in this thing together and we need one another. So I want to look at some disciplines this morning that involve each other, that recognize your spiritual growth is actually tied to some of the other people sitting in this room. And without them, you're only going to get so far in following Jesus. So a few practices. These are things, remember, that Jesus himself practiced while he walked the earth. That's where we draw this idea of spiritual disciplines. They're things Jesus developed as habits in his life to help him walk closer with the Father. And so if he needed these practices, probably chances are so do we. First one is the discipline or the practice of service. John chapter 13. This is the last meal that Jesus eats with his disciples. It's the night before he's crucified. And we know this meal most because it's the Last Supper. This is where we get the whole institution of communion from. It's what Jesus did. He broke the bread and he gave out the cup. But before all that happened, he did something else. He was reclining with his disciples at the table. They've had a good meal. They've had a glass of wine or two. And then Jesus does something extraordinary. He gets up, he takes off his outer cloak, and he puts on a serving towel. And he proceeds to take a bowl of water and a cloth and wash the feet of his disciples. This was a role that was reserved for a menial household servant. It's the kind of thing that should have happened when the disciples first entered the house, but obviously there was no servant there that night. And obviously none of the disciples, it hadn't occurred to any of these guys to do this, for one another. They obviously assumed this was far beneath them. It's the role of a slave girl or a slave boy, usually a non-Jewish slave boy or slave girl, because the role was just so low. It wouldn't have even been considered by God's chosen people. It was such an outsider task, such a lowest rung on the social ladder task. Imagine how shocking this was for Jesus, how embarrassing it would have been for his disciples, how humiliating for him, how awkward for everyone in the room. They would have looked down these awkward stairs as Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And look at the way he interprets this event. In verse 12, he says, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus gives us this extraordinary pattern of relating to one another in the manner of servant, the manner of a menial household servant, not vying for greatness, not trying to get one up on each other, but lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves, humiliating ourselves if necessary in order to serve each other with love. This is the pattern of the kingdom. In fact, this is, Jesus goes on to say, this is the way that people are going to know you're my disciples. This is the whole way in which you'll be a contrast community to the rest of the world, that you'll relate to one another in the model of a servant, not in the model of greatness and being the master of one another. In my office, I've got a carving of this scene. Jesus stooping down and he's got a bowl of water and he's washing Peter's feet. 
It was made in Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And it reminds me that that's my role. You know, not, not just as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus. And honestly, you know, I fail spectacularly at that. I'm not setting myself up as a model of service at all. But it reminds me, all the more reason I need the reminder that this is who I'm called to be. Lest I get some great view of who I am and start to think I'm a little bit, a little bit more and a little bit better, that picture, it earths me and it grounds me in this picture of a servant. It's what life's supposed to be like. And this is how we grow spiritually, by getting outside of our problems, our troubles, our needs for a while and doing things that honestly and practically serve other people. And sometimes this is uh, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer simply called the ministry of helpfulness. It doesn't always have to be things that help people who are in desperate need. They might not be in financial distress. It might not be crisis type situations. It's just simply being a servant and being helpful to each other. Earlier this year, Anna and I bought a house and uh, we wanted to strip the wallpaper in a lot of the upstairs uh, bedrooms and we wanted to repaint some of these rooms. And over the course of a couple of weekends, a bunch of people showed up and gave hours of their time to helping us strip wallpaper, this awful gluey wallpaper off these walls. I still remember Alan McGregor, I think it was the greatest test of his Christian character ever, trying to pull this wallpaper, this gluey stuff that had become enmeshed with the jib board, and it was just flailing away for hours trying to get this stuff off in a dark bedroom at the end of our house. But people were so generous with their time, and so willing, and so cheerful. And this task that, that seemed overwhelming to us at the beginning just got done so quickly, it was such an amazing blessing. Those of you who've experienced this, and small, maybe have had a, had a meal delivered, maybe you've been blessed in some way, you've had people that have just pitched in, done something, showed up, made a call, pitched in. It's an incredible blessing. But our attitude should be, who can I be that for? How can I be helpful? Are there people in your life whom you could serve, whom you could follow the model of Jesus, and wash their feet, not literally, but in the manner of doing things, reaching out, helping out, ways that are going to show love, meet some needs, and just be a blessing to them. And sometimes this isn't even about doing stuff. It's just about being present to people. It's just about loving them. It's just about encouraging them. I remember a few years ago, I had the, the toughest uh, meeting, the toughest night that I'd ever had in ministry. Just a horrific meeting. Really, really awful. Just awful words spoken and a lot of emotions vented and a lot of attacking. And I came away from that meeting just honestly wondering whether I could, whether I could carry on. Just honestly wondering whether, whether, whether pastoral ministry was what I was cut out for. I remember the next day, Gary Marshall, one of our elders at the time, he called me up. He wasn't even in the meeting, but he'd heard about it. And he said, hey, let's go out for coffee. And he took me out to Paper Moon Cafe, you remember that, in Myringi Bay, and just encouraged me. He didn't try to have all the answers, didn't try to solve all the problems, but he just encouraged me. And honestly, I think it saved my ministry. I think it saved me. Because I just needed someone to be present with me. 
and just encourage me and just, just put things in a bit of perspective, just breathe some hope and some life back into me. And I think he mediated the love and the grace of Jesus to me that day in an amazing way. I thank you for it. I just wonder whether there are people in our own worlds, you know, that we might, we might not be aware of because we're just so tunnel vision sometimes with our own stuff and our own needs and our own priorities. But are there people around you that could do with that? Whom you could encourage somehow? Maybe it's a card that could be sent at Christmas. Maybe it's by showing up, taking them out for coffee, getting alongside someone here at church that might look a bit lonely. This is the way of Jesus, friends. This is what it is to love Jesus. We do it not out of condemnation. We do it because Jesus has done this for us in in an amazing way. Through the cross, he's demonstrated what it means to serve. And the cross becomes the model of our life together. And this discipline of serving is so good for your own spiritual growth. It's not just a blessing to the people that you serve. It does something for your own heart. Just gets you beyond yourself a bit. Tunes you into the needs of others. Makes you a little more like Jesus. Conforms you a little bit more to his image. That's why it's a spiritual discipline, because it helps us to grow as well as it's helping other people. So that's the discipline of service. Second discipline, second community discipline is guidance and hospitality. Uh, Sorry, guidance and accountability. And we draw this, you know, you think about the way that Jesus related to his own disciples. He had 12 disciples that he journeyed with and shared his life with, but then he had a tight three, didn't he? Within that circle, there was this inner circle, Peter and James and John. And he really opened up to these guys. He really let them in, I think, in a way that he didn't let the other disciples in. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? And and Jesus shares openly with these guys. He says, my soul is overwhelmed within me to the point of death. He didn't say that to all 12. He says this to Peter and James and John. He draws these guys close. And I don't think for him it was just giving out to these guys. Obviously, Jesus gave a lot and he taught a lot and he shared a lot. But I think he needed them too. He asked them to pray for him while he went and spent that time wrestling with God in prayer the night before he was crucified. He needed that inner circle, those tight relationships that would help him see things clearly, uphold him in prayer, become fully human. If Jesus needed those people around him, don't you think we do? One person, two people, three people maybe, that we draw close and really open ourselves up to. Let them in, and in turn they let us into some of their struggles so that we can help each other, so that we can encourage each other to grow. We place ourselves in this position where we ask them for their support and their help and their prayer. I used to have this with a group of guys, met for breakfast every uh, Wednesday morning at Denny's. And uh, we even had some set questions that we would ask each other each week because otherwise we knew we'd be too chicken to ask. So we just had some questions. We're going to ask each other these questions every week, you know. And we would get into each other's life, not just for the point of being kind of voyeuristic about each other's stuff, but so that we could support each other. And when something came up, and when one of us messed up, as we regularly did, the others would 
encourage. Because, you know, as much as anything in that moment when you've messed up and screwed up, you don't need someone to tell you off. You need grace. You need a word of grace and a word of love. And that's what we sought to be for each other. But along the way, that was encouraging and motivating and inspiring. You know, come back to the metaphor of of fitness. Think about this part of it like a spiritual fitness partner. Anna and I were talking to a friend the other day who runs a lot, and she was saying she's got a running partner. And it's a huge motivation for her because when it's time to run, she knows her friend is waiting for her at the corner. And if she can't be bothered, if she's just too tired or sleeps in or whatever, she knows she's leaving her friend waiting. And that is motivating for her to get the shoes on, get out the door, and get running. It's a bit like that. There's someone else who's running the race alongside us. There's someone else who's working at the gym alongside us, the gym of life, if you like. And it's a bit motivating, isn't it? It just stirs our spirit a bit to keep going. We encourage each other. Speak a bit of hope to each other. Even to know that someone else is battling away a bit makes you feel like you're not alone. And you can encourage them and they can encourage you. I often think of these accountability relationships a bit like someone that you give permission to take a great big mirror and hold it up to your life so you can see yourself clearly. Because the reality is, like it or not, we've all got blind spots. We all struggle to greater or lesser degrees with self-awareness. There is stuff right now that you don't know about yourself that other people see. So you've got to decide, do you want to know that? Do you want to grow through that? Do you want to develop character past that? Or are you content with just not knowing a lot of that stuff? Now, of course, we're not just going to bowl up to some random person and give anyone the opportunity to speak into our life. But within a relationship of trust, you might say to someone, hey, I need you to hold that mirror up. And if there's things you see, if there's things you hear, I want you to be open enough to tell me because I want to grow. You don't want someone who's going to condemn you. You don't want someone who's going to beat you over the head with it. But someone who lovingly points it out to you, tells you the truth in love, as the scripture calls us to do, for the purpose of encouragement and the purpose of building you up, not tearing you down. If you can find that person, you're onto a winning thing. Because it's, it's just such a huge accelerant in your spiritual growth. So think about drawing someone alongside you. If there's no one, if you can't think of anyone, start praying. Start praying today. That God would bring someone along your path. One or two people, just, just one is fine. Whom you could meet with, encourage, pray, maybe open the scriptures together. Just be in each other's lives. It'll help you to grow. It'll be a spiritual fitness partner for you in this race of living out the Jesus life. That's guidance and accountability. And finally, number three is hospitality. Matthew chapter 9. It's a description of the kinds of people here that Jesus enjoyed hospitality with. And hospitality might seem like a funny thing to include in a message on spiritual disciplines, but as I've thought about it, I've become more more and more convinced of its importance for our spiritual growth. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In the first century in Jesus' time, who you ate with was so important. It was a huge marker of social identity. It was a way of creating a bond between people to share a meal together. It was a very unifying thing. And at the same time, it kept other people out. It reinforced the in-group, and then it marginalized the out-group, the ones who weren't invited to the table. So it was all about social boundaries and social markers of identity. And generally the rule was in Jesus' day that like eats with like. So Jews eat with Jews, non-Jews with non-Jews, rich with rich, poor with poor, and so on. You didn't tend to cross the barriers, cultural, socioeconomic, whatever. And against that cultural backdrop, you see how scandalous this is, what Jesus is doing. That he reaches across all the boundaries. He reaches across the cultural boundary, reaches across the social boundary, reaches across the gender boundary, and he invites others and he invites people to the table and he's perfectly comfortable sitting and having a meal with people very unlike himself, but just sharing in a common humanity and loving people regardless of who they are. And even though our society is not exactly like Jesus, I think it's very easy for us today to still gravitate into exclusive little social groups that can still reinforce social boundaries between who's in the group and who's not in the group. We tend to have our little social circle, our little huddle of people, our little life group, and we're a bit wary of people on the outside. We're a bit wary of people coming in. It's so good for our heart, so good for our spiritual growth to discipline ourselves, to reach out, beyond the people that you already know, already comfortable with, already kick around with, and learn the art of hospitality, inviting others to the table. And literally, I think one of the best ways of doing this is having people in your home, inviting them to the table. I was talking to a couple, uh, I think it was last week, they've been coming to the church just a few weeks. First day they arrived, I think it was the very first Sunday, they met a couple here who they hadn't met before, just another couple at their life stage who said hi to them, struck up a conversation. They met them again the next week. And I think it was by about the third week that the couple who were already in church at Shaw said to them, hey, you want to come to our place for lunch? Just casually, informally, spontaneously. So they went there, had a great afternoon. Kids played together. It was fantastic. And I think for them, that was such an important step in encouraging them to anchor themselves in the life of this community that they were approached, and it wasn't a church program, it wasn't a church ministry, this, this couple didn't have a name badge on saying, it's my job to invite you for lunch, it was just, this is what it meant for that couple to, to be Jesus people, and it made a difference. Are there people you could have in your home? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to open up your own table to people that you might just come across? They might not even naturally be part of who would be in your social circle, your stage in life, whatever, but can you reach out a little bit, invite people in? Something about sharing a meal together, isn't there? Something about having people in your home creates a bond or being in another person's home. I think it's a lost art, but I think we can recover it as a church. But it's got to happen spontaneously, and it's got to happen naturally, and it's got to happen organically. It just bubbles up, this stuff. And if you're not comfortable having people in your home, meet them at a cafe, you know? I went to uh, the last newcomer's lunch, or maybe the one before that, turned up at Columbus Coffee, and there was a whole group of people from Shaw there who didn't know each other. There was one couple in the church who had just kind of gotten alongside a few people and invited them to Columbus for lunch that day. 
It wasn't the official newcomer's lunch, although they had more people than we did. It's like their own version of a newcomer's lunch. They just had some, some people that they'd met. Some were new, some weren't so new, but they were meeting each other and they were getting connected and it was just so good and it was so healthy. And it's so easy. Just talk to people. Just share a meal with people. I know there's a bit of awkwardness because it does involve some conversations beyond just the people that you always already talk to every week at church. But that's what being a follower of Jesus is about. It's what makes us look a bit different to the world. We can relate in different ways and we're prepared to reach across the boundary of social awkwardness sometimes to start a conversation that might just lead to a meal, that might just make the difference in a person's life or a person's journey of faith or journey into a church community. It only works when it's natural, though, eh? When it just springs up from willing hearts. So this is something every one of us can do. And I think at the broadest level, hospitality is simply about being an inclusive community, even when there's not food involved, just being an inclusive group. It's always disappointing when I hear about life groups who say, oh, we're a closed group. You know, I would love for our church to be a church where there is no such thing as a closed life group where no group ever has that label. And I know the issues. I know you, get, you only fit so many people in your living room. Biffy thought she could fit 102. She was wrong. You know, you can only have so many people, right? I know that. But what about the idea of growing a group to the point where you can plant or even birth out a new group? And I know people worry because if, if you have someone coming in, it disrupts the dynamic. And you say, well, we want to create honesty here. And we want to create transparency. And we want to have trust. And if we have someone else come in, it's going to mess that up. I was thinking this week of Alcoholics Anonymous, just randomly, not because I'm thinking of going, but just <laughs> crossed my mind. And I thought, you know, I mean, I've never been to a meeting, um, but from what I have heard and what I have read about AA, the nature of those meetings, there is a radical honesty there. There, there is a brutal truth-telling and story-sharing and just opening up and confessing. I mean, they would have an honesty and self-disclosure in those groups that I think a lot of churches would love to have in life groups. And yet, those meetings are almost always open meetings. You can go on the website, find an AA group near you, and if you are genuinely struggling with alcoholism, you can go along. So somehow, they are able to hold together openness and transparency, but also inclusivity and hospitality. I think it's a false assumption that says those two things have to live in separate worlds, that we either have trust or we have inclusivity, but we can't have both. I think we can. I think Jesus shows us how we can. And I think we've got to take steps to practice it. In fact, I would argue that if you just have the same group of people sitting around in your living room year after year after year, I would say that is inhibitive to your spiritual growth because it gets stale over time. Fresh people bring fresh stories, fresh perspectives, fresh pain and fresh joy for you to enter into together and live life together. And that's good, and that's healthy, and it helps us to grow. So there you go. Three outward disciplines, three community disciplines for us to begin practicing together. Last Saturday, I went out to the uh, Hobsonville Army Base. I met a young guy out there, part of a family in our church, who's training for the Army at the moment. And I met him out there on the base, and he was telling me how it all works, the different training programs they do, the exercises they do, how their unit works. And he was saying the whole way it's structured 
is that they put you in these little units, these little little teams of people within the whole um, the whole you know group, and you train together and you work out together. And if one person in your unit messes up or breaks the rules, the whole team gets punished. So if one person you know steals an extra apple at dinner time or something, the whole team's got to get down and do thirty push-ups. And the point of this, of course, is to emphasize the fact that you are not here in this training program as a solitary, isolated unit, purely responsible for your own behavior, and that's where it starts and finishes. Because that's how most of these guys come in thinking that it is. That's how most of us live. And they work so hard there to enforce this idea of team, that you are responsible for the person on your right and left. Your success or failure in this program is going to depend to a large degree on them and them, and their success on you. Now, I'm not saying if someone drops the communion cup, we all got to do 30 push-ups or anything, you know. But, but you get the idea. We've got to get past this idea that we're just isolated Christians, responsible only for me and my own private little relationship with God. Your success or failure in the Christian life is inextricably bound up with the rest of us in this room. How far you get on this journey, how well you run, is inseparably tied to how others do. And whether we're prepared to be there for one another, lend a hand, provide some support, serve one another, become accountable to one another, and show hospitality to one another. Spiritual growth is a team sport, not just an individual one. And so really the simple question at the end of this series is just, do you want to grow? Do you want to grow? You've got to reach a point, I think, of discontentment where you're just sick of playing the game, just sick of playing church, plateauing along, not going anywhere, just going through the motions. You've got to be hungry for it. You've got to be dissatisfied with just being spiritually stalled out and dawdling around the track. And if you are, it starts by taking personal responsibility for your own spiritual growth and starting to put in place some habits some training practices, some disciplines that will help you to grow. The regular practice of scripture, practice of solitude and silence, discipline of serving others, being accountable to others, and showing hospitality to others. So that we might get to the end of our lives and be able to say the words that Paul said to Timothy, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to all on that day who have longed for his appearing. I want to be able to say those words at the end of my life. And I think that's worth developing some healthy habits in the present. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that this is all about you and it's all about grace. We only have these lives because of you. We're only able to grow in our faith because of what you've already done for us. And we're so grateful for the price you've paid and the length that you've gone to open up this new way of living, this new way of being human for us. And I pray now, Lord Jesus, for every person in this room that as we, as we go into the crazy season of Christmas, this busy time, this intense time with so many demands and so much chaos. 
that, Jesus, you would give us the courage and the commitment to our own personal spiritual growth to put in place some of these disciplines. And Lord, would you just speak it into our heart even now? Maybe the one or two disciplines that we've talked about that we particularly need to focus on. If there's one thing, if there's a couple of things, Holy Spirit, bring them to mind, press it on our heart, that habit that you would want us to put in place, the ways that you're calling us to grow. We thank you that you're calling us on. You don't just leave us as we are. You're calling us forward and you're moving us on and you're absolutely committed to us growing to become more like you. We want to partner with you in that. We want to cooperate with you in that. We want to train in such a way as to win the prize. So give us the courage and give us the commitments and give us the diligence to make these things a reality in our day-to-day lives for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.